Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. Well, I think about that mole incident, and then I think about the, the, st- the opening story about how he shot through the door and he shot you, and he left scars. Mm-hmm. Yes. Part two of Kate's story, a story of domestic violence, of scars of her past, and making a path for a new future. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. You're now walking around with the scars. Mm-hmm. What is what is that like to have to look into the mirror and I, I don't mean to phrase it in a way that puts emphasis undue, but mm-hmm. I imagine that you now live with the scars of your past and you have to face them every day. Every day. And people underestimate that. I could go on a full rant about what it is to be a gunshot survivor, somebody that was actually shot and lived. Because people think, oh, the physical wounds healed, so you're fine. But you're not. You're not fine. My hand. My hand is not my hand anymore. My right. My right. I'm right-handed. Um, I I favor my left now. I don't handwrite all that much because it gets fatigued. I can't do it. I don't type the same. Um, I'm, it's very weak. I can't open I can't open my front door with the key with my right hand God. it's too weak I have to use my left um, you know I've had to alter my life around this my hand is numb half the hand is numb um, it's very sensitive to temperatures um, the, a bullet went in and out my left breast it's not definitely not something everybody sees every day but I do I see it every day there's an entrance and an exit I mean, it's a constant reminder of how I almost died, the, especially the breast one, because it just missed my heart. Like, I, I, it's a constant reminder of how close I came. People underestimate the toll that that takes on a human being to have to, you know, pick up the pieces and be a mom and, you know, work, go to work every day and <laughs> live a normal life. It's like, you know, oh, I should just be so happy that I live. Well, I am happy that I live, but it doesn't mean that there, there's not constant struggles just being a survivor. Um, yeah, it's, with the hand, it's just very, very frustrating. And the other thing is that, yes, I have these scars, but day to day, people don't notice my hand, that anything's wrong with my hand. I just look like a normal person walking, you know, walking around in this world, but I have this, you know, massive thing that happened and people don't know about it because I, I don't present as anything is wrong. Um, so, yeah, that's that's. It's a it's a big frustration, honestly. 
was the writing the book therapeutic? For sure. Yeah, it was. Um, Normally, because, you know, I've been speaking out about what happened for pretty much since it happened. But most of any media coverage that I've gotten has wanted to focus on the shooting because that's like the big thing, you know. But there was so, there was just so much that led up to it that I don't always get to talk about. And so it was, it felt really, really good to get all of those pieces into one place. And, um, you know, just to, just to share that and understand that a lot of people are going to read this and I know it's going to have an impact. So yeah, it was, it was really a powerful process putting the book together. Where are you right now? Are you in your grief stages? Are you, where are you? Are you angry? Are you happy? What, where are you right now in all this process Hmm. as you, are slowly drifting away from not just the date of the the shooting, but the years of abuse that you were a part of. Where are you? Um, It ebbs and flows. I'm not nearly as angry as I used to be. I was stuck in anger for years after, many, several years after this happened. Um, it started to get better a little after our tri- after the trial and, and he was sentenced to 60 years because I, I know he'll die there. So that gave some relief and satisfaction and we weren't just, you know, I wasn't like in limbo anymore about what was going to happen to him. Um, that whole scenario of you know, going through the criminal trial was horrific and re-traumatizing. So, yeah, I was in anger for a long, long time. Um, I'm probably in the healthiest place mentally and emotionally that that I've been maybe in my whole life. Wow. Like, really. Um, I was a kid that was filled with anxiety. I was a teenager, young woman filled with anxiety. And I feel like I look back at her at young me and I, I was just kind of floundering through life, just not sure of who I was or what I wanted. And I guess the up, the upside of this whole thing is that it's really put me in a place where like, I know what I want. I know what I'll, what I'll put up with. I, I'm very good about setting boundaries with people. Um, I'm just in a, in a, in a much healthier space than ever in my life. So, um, so yeah, that's a relief. It's really, it's, it really feels like a relief. <laughs> I noticed when I first saw the cover of the book, because I've been following you on social media for a while Mm-hmm. Um, and just have been fascinated with 
your online conversations and and when you released the book I saw the cover and I was like huh I would have never expected you and that's not to say that there's anything uh, to judge here but it's like that's a strong pose that you have on the cover that yep. was very in, and I can tell that was an intentional thing yes it was talk about the cover and that intentionality behind that pose and the two other poses I would I, I would love to hear what you were thinking so my co-author, uh, Elisa Devine, is also a photographer, a professional photographer. So when we started talking about cover concepts, we, we threw around a lot of, a lot of ideas. Um, I wasn't even sure if I was going to, you know, I was going to put myself on the cover, if we were going to do something more abstract. Um, and then we, then we decided that, yeah, I should, I should be, I should be on the cover. And we had gotten together in Boston for my friend, our friend Laverne Gordon. Um, she runs Love Life Now Foundation out of Boston. She had um, an event going on. I think it was September of 2018. And so Elisa and I met in Boston and, and went to Laverne's event. Um, oh, she writes the introduction. Laverne writes the introduction in my book. Um, so when we got together, we were like, uh, we had talked about what, like what we wanted to do. We had talked about like even the clothes I'm wearing and what, you know, what I, you know, how I wanted to present myself. And when we got together, we decided to, I guess, show a little bit of the of the journey of me through those photographs so on the left side you you I'm looking over my shoulder I, I I'm a little like uncertain or just in distress a little bit yep that's that's what we were at least trying to capture and then on the right um facing forward, like a, looking a little, like a little more positive. And then just like the strong, like here I am stance in the middle. And I think she did a terrific job of, of capturing kind of that journey of me. And it goes with Killing Kate, really. Well, I think that picture, especially the center picture, um, mm -hmm. very much showcases in my humble opinion in our conversation where you are right now um, yeah yep and especially on you were very straightforward on social media um, oh yeah talk about <laughs> that <me. laughs> but that's there's I, I would love to hear why how are you using that platform right now and how do you use it in a way as you use that strong voice. Uh, talk about that a little well, bit. Well, my, my public Facebook page was started, friends of mine started it actually when I was in the hospital after the shooting as a, almost like a ground zero for here's what's going on with Kate. Cause I don't know. I, I, I 
know a lot of people, I guess, and it was just easier than sending one-off texts and whatever to various people. So uh, I took it over really right when I got home. And I, I mean, if you go all the way back to the very first posts in 2012, you can see where my friends were posting and then you can literally see where I took yep. took it over. And I began, I, I, I treated it almost like a journal that was public. Um, I captured so many of the mo- moments that are even described in the book are actually captured on that on that Facebook page um, from the trial we had where uh, eight months after the shooting where they revoked his parental rights to William there's that's documented there um, I, everything all of it the entire journey is there and for me I express myself the best in writing and it was an outlet for me and that that page and the support I got and continue to get is almost like a touchstone for me. Which is um, fascinating because in the book you talk about the compromise you had to make in order to have a Facebook page. You talk about, right. you know, only your female friends could be on there. And if you had a male, exactly. it, 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 it's amazing. <laughs> the irony. It's the, yeah, yeah it, it, it just fascinates oh, me. I was so controlled in the relationship, right, to the point that I wasn't, quote, allowed to have Facebook at the beginning in 2008 when everybody was joining. Then I, you know, manipulated my way into having a page, but, right, I would only have female friends and male family members. And if any man friend requested me, I needed to let him know. I mean, down that to that much control to then I'm sharing everything, all of it with the entire world is, yeah. How did you get your voice? Because your voice was minimized through that process. Yes, it was. When did your voice truly take active steam? Um... Well, it's evolved. Did it since. open? Did it open up when, right after you took over, after your fr- your friends? It did. It did. Uh, it, yes. It, I would say it began in 2012 once I took the page over and made the decision that I was going to basically document this journey um, in order to because I. Right after the shooting, I was filled with like guilt and shame, but also anger because it, I, I just felt so strongly that we were let down by so many people and that I needed people, I needed people to know about this. Like this was, yes, this happened and, but it wasn't my fault. He did this. Like the, the, the really it should, the, the blame is on him. And I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it. That's the, so. Yeah, I think it. My voice. I I found my voice in 2012, but it only became stronger as the years went on. And now you have a new voice, your professional side. Yep. 
talk yep. how do you balance the advocate the person tackling the world and domestic violence and to spread the message with professional Kate to make money what is that <laughs> what is that like talk about that balance and that per, that yeah, p- it's, public it's profile not, it's, it's not easy but i i can't I can't live and breathe this day in and day out for a living as well. You know, I, I like having my job where, you know, I've got, I've got a great job with a great company, an amazing manager. I'm the, the topic is not this heavy stuff, this, this, you know, heavy personal stuff that I, that I, you know, do with my advocacy and it gives me a chance to just, just be, you know, like Kate goes into the, like I, like I go into the office and, you know, every Thursday they, they bring in lunch and I, you know, interact with my coworkers and I I get to just kind of put all of the other stuff aside and just feel as close to normal as I can feel, if that makes sense. And then I get such joy out of being a mom too and doing things with my kids that doesn't always have everything to do with this. Um, I don't find a huge problem balancing it, to be honest. Hmm. Other people might, but I, I, I really don't. I, well, you talked about I compartmentalizing think- your relationships so have you yeah. have you found you've learned to compartmentalize your life, so to speak, as a part of this journey? But I don't think I don't think in an unhealthy way. I don't. Oh I no! Don't find it, I, and I don't yeah, mean to don't ask like, that in an unhealthy way. Yeah, I think that's well, awesome. Cause, cause, yeah, because people tend to think compartmentalizing is not a, like in therapy. That's not a good thing. Right. But I yes, I I I, I think I've finally found a balance where. Like, for example, I've been slammed in September and October with domestic violence, with the book launching and, you know, interviews and traveling to uh, around domestic violence and speaking to groups about it. And it's just been, it's been a lot. But next week, my son William and I will go up to our our peaceful place, which is Rockport, Massachusetts. And I'll take care of myself there. It's peaceful. It's quiet. It's beautiful. I can, you know, recenter again and recharge. And and I know that I need to do the, I know I need to do that after a ton of advocacy. So I didn't, I think in the past I, I was so, like gung ho to share that I didn't take the time as much to, you know, like regroup with myself. Um, and then I would burn out. So I, I've, I've finally with work and being a mom and being an advocate, I, I do feel I've finally struck like a, a good balance and I know what I need to do to be able to recharge and keep going. I was interviewing uh, about two months ago um, a lady by the name of Janita, 
such a beautiful woman. She went through such a horrible abuse. And we told her story and, and I hadn't seen her in a year. We've kept in touch through after that, we told that story. Mm -hmm. And then we told her, her story, she was getting married. And, um, after going through the abusive relationship that, that she went to, went through and, Mm -hmm. uh, we, I saw her for the first time during that interview and she walked in Mm -hmm. and she looked like a different person. Mm -hmm. The Kate, I mean, the, the, the Janita that I saw a few years ago was talking about leaving and was wearing dark clothes and was insecure with how she looked and was Mm -hmm. worried about how she was going to look in the camera and what words she could use and was it okay to use the F-bomb when describing her feelings. Mm -hmm. And then the Janita that walked in the door was wearing bright... Self-assured, yep. Was wearing bright colors and her hair was done how she wanted it done. And her smile came through her lips and she was aglow. And I knew when she walked in the door... You could feel the glow coming out when you saw her. And I was so proud of her, but then I was so proud of her ability to recognize that. And and so I ask you, where is your peace? Where is your glow? Have you found it yet? Are you still in seek of it? Or is that tiny little place in Massachusetts the place you go get peace? That is where I go get peace. Is it? Um, it is. I like. I just feel like I can breathe <laughs> there, and just you know, just be. Um, but I, I, I do think that the the release of the of the book has changed me in a profound way just even over the last few weeks um i feel i i feel more powerful i feel more like in control of my life um self-assured um like i i can almost it's like i can i can feel it on the inside now where I, I didn't before. Um, I think for a lot of women coming out of abuse, like you, like you were just describing, she wasn't, she was almost asking for permission to do this and that, or can I say this or that, or how am I going to look? It's because of years of, you know, being told what to do and told you're a piece of shit and, you know, not worth anything. And it's just this long, long process of turning off that tape and understanding that, no, they were full of shit, yep. you know, yep. and I- embracing who you are. And I-, I can feel that I'm at that, I'm at that point where I'm not looking externally anymore for reassurance in who I am. Um, you know, I'm not seeking out 
like relationships to define me. I'm not where I think that those were kind of bad habits that I had in the past. Um, that I looked elsewhere for, you know, uh, for reassurance, but I don't need that anymore. And it's a, it's a really, um, it's a really beautiful place to be. I wonder in the place that you are now too, is that you talked a little bit about it, especially during this month and September as it gears up and sometimes really August too, is people start preparing for their advocacy. They prepare for their, all the pieces as we do the domestic violence awareness mechanisms all the way through October. Are you finding where people are using your story for their own personal gain? You know, whether I was look, I was reading a couple different articles and one was focusing on gun control and your stories in it. And then there's other articles about different pieces of your story used in different lenses. What are your thoughts there? Or do you care? And it's just like, Hey, my story is my story. Um, yeah, I, I felt that way a little bit, uh, after a while of, uh, of being in the gun violence prevention movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I was aligned with a large organization and, um, I, I felt that, that they were, trying to control my story and my message. Um, and that I did not appreciate that at all. (laughs) Like this happened to me. I'm going to, I'm going to say it how I want to say it. And so once I moved away from that and just owned it as being like, I'm a survivor. I get, it's my story. I get to tell it how I want to tell it. It's actually opened many, many more opportunities. Um, I mean, I've really like spread my wings um, more going out on my own and doing it my own way. So um, I I don't know. I I don't know about like exploitation or anything. I, I, for a long time, I was just really happy that the story, I, I had opportunities even to tell the story. Yep. So I'm not, I, I'm not saying I take that for granted at all. I, right. I appreciated all the really early opportunities that I had. Um, but once I sort of found my stride with it, I wanted, you know, I wanted to say, gun control yes i want gun control right I believe that right right the gun situation is out of control and people have people like domestic abusers have way too easy access to guns and that's what they're using to kill people that's what they're using to, to kill their wives and children so yes and i want to be able to say that you know um like i don't want to be micromanaged down to terminology that kind of stuff so yeah um, once I gained confidence I, in, in that, I, I really wanted to just take control of my own message and say that things the way I want to say it, and I'm very, very blunt about it. <laughs> well, I, I've been watching your advocacy from a legislative standpoint, 
Talk about some of the mm-hmm. things that you have pioneered or been a part of. Um, I noticed the Phoenix Act out of California. I know you're on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. What Talk about those things that you've been a part of and what that experience has been like to raise awareness in those avenues. Well, when I uh, started to work with Evan Rachel Wood and, and her team on the Phoenix Act, um, I had, uh, they flew me out to California to give uh, testimony, um, like at a press conference um, at the state capitol in Sacramento. And we saw it pass, I think it was the House of Representatives at that point. It still needed to go through like several more phases before the, the governor finally did just sign it, I, I think a couple weeks ago. Um, so, but I, I got to see the legislation, which um, the Phoenix Act extends the um, amount of time an abuser or uh, a victim has to report an abuser. So in California, it used to be three years. And I believe the Phoenix Act passed with it giving them eight years. Why is that so I important? Believe. Um, just because it's such a hard process. You're so terrorized coming out of abuse. I mean, even three years out from mine, I was a mess. Like, and I didn't, I'm a person that didn't find it hard to talk about. I wanted to talk about it, but there's so many women that, uh, you know, it just takes so long to get to heal and be okay and, and have the, strength and confidence to come forward and report it that you know everybody's different and everybody's situation is different maybe they're in extreme danger coming out of it and and it takes five years just for them to be safe so the phoenix act allows time for that stuff so it's not just so quick right after when you don't know what's going on in these relationships once once she does leave and and wants to report, but maybe she can't. So it was just very satisfying. I told the team that it was so satisfying to actually see something, a piece of legislation that, you know, I really cared about pass because for so long I'd been in, within the gun violence prevention movement, we don't see things. Mm-hmm. past often yep. at all, if at all. Um, we've seen, I think in Virginia, some legislation passed, I want to say in 2016, about around um, abusers and guns, and if he's convicted of domestic violence, his guns can be taken. But <laughs> what people don't understand is just how difficult it is to actually get a conviction on domestic violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys plead down it's a misdemeanor, they don't lose their guns. So I've not actually I've never seen like something really passed unanimously that had such like bipartisan support as I did when I was in California for the Phoenix Act. So uh, you know, I've, I did a press conference with Amy Klobuchar back in the spring. I did two separate ones for the Violence Against Women Act and shared my story. And now it's just sitting in the Senate, you know? Yep. 
Mitch McConnell won't even call a hearing for it. So I, I'm not used to seeing legislation pass, and it's it's a very it can be a very uphill battle, frustrating, like bang your head against the wall type of thing to be in the on the political side of it because things just don't seem to move. I I enjoyed following you during that you being on Capitol Hill, and I remember after you testified, mm-hmm. you came out and it wasn't as if you were second guessing it, but it was almost like you were you walked out of a whirlwind. And it's like, ha, ah, what just happened? Did I do yeah. good? Talk about yeah. that experience of walking out after that and what it felt like. Well, which one are you referring to? Sorry. Uh, well, maybe educate to me because I'm thinking about the time you were on Capitol Hill a few months ago, and I was following you, and you came out, and you had, a, I think, either a Twitter post or a Facebook post talking about how, wow, that was a crazy experience, and wow, did I do good, and did this work? Um, and oh, I've had multiple. <laughs> That's why I was like, which one? Because I've had multiple experiences of that. Um, the 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 uh, Klobuchar press mm. conference. Yep. I I I really felt good about it because my I felt like my voice was was really strong, but it's like it is. It's this like whirlwind feeling. Like I'm. Oh my gosh, I'm standing here telling one of the most horrific things that ever happened to me to like this crowd of cameras that's standing there and it's it's a very strange dynamic. Um and yeah, it's it's I'm always uncertain like what is it did this actually make any bit of difference, you know? Um I'll I'll always do it, but it's it's like I said, it's just, it's very frustrating to do this and then not see anything happen. Uh, or, you know, just to see it, see something just, just die in, in Congress. Um, but the more recent one was when I testified, um, in front of the House Armed Services Committee. That's with, it. That's um, it. That's it. Um, Jackie Spear. Yes. Uh, rep- uh, yeah, Congresswoman Jackie Spear had heard me speak at the Klobuchar press conference. Her ears perked up about the military side of my story, and she called the first hearing in, I think, 15 years about domestic violence in the military. And I got tapped to uh, come testify. So that was actually the first time I'd. I've spoken at the Capitol, like on the grounds and on the steps, but I've never like testified in front of committee. So this, that was the first time I'd done that. And it was the first time that I'd spoken publicly about the military mm. and how much they screwed us over. Yep. And yeah, that felt like a whirlwind because it was like this rush. Cause I, I, just had never been able to publicly name his commanders that let him retire instead mm. of court-martialing him. Um, I got to, you know, write this this whole statement and and submit it for the record. It'll be it's on the record forever now. Um, but like, then there's always the okay. Well, I did that, but now what? Like now now what? So they called the hearing. Now what? 
we're, we, let's put some legislation together, um, you know, to protect women in the military, wives of service members, you know, that are experiencing domestic violence. Like, what's the next step? So I, I'm just, I'm not very patient <laughs> with the whole process. Um, I'd like to see, see things change a lot more quickly than they do. Well, it's funny, it's, you perk up real quickly when you talk about that. So I imagine that you are in this balance of advocacy, balance of family life and work, and it's like, you know, how do you direct your energy in these places and keep it all going? And and I guess my big question is, is what is the sole reason you share this story? Like, why did you respond to some random podcast out of South Carolina. Why do you keep on telling this story? So when I took over my Facebook page and basically really from my hospital bed, I said to myself in my head, I'm going to tell the story and if I save one life, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll feel satisfied. And then that happened. So, you know, I was contacted like six months later by a young woman who was being abused by her military spouse and young woman. And she had found my story and uh, she had found my page. And because of what I had been posting, she, she left. And I mean, I'm still friends with her on Facebook and she's thriving and doing great. And this is, you know, many years ago. So the one life then became, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> you know, I got to keep, I'm going to keep going. And so I've made it, I've made it my business to take as many opportunities as I can to get this story and what happened and the messages around it out because you never know who's going to need it. Who's going to hear this and, you know, it'll make, maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe it'll open somebody's eyes. Maybe it'll open people's eyes to the dynamic of domestic violence and, and, Maybe, you know, we can have these conversations without victim blaming, uh, without, you know, judging women for getting into the, for, you know, for these situations happening to them. It's, it, you know, so I, I just, I'm very driven. I'm very, very driven by that, that the more people hear it, the, it, the more people will have these conversations and you know, go down this difficult road and awareness sparks change, really. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint 